Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Each week, my business history co-host, Scott Luton, and I travel back through time to bring you the best business stories, innovations, people, and surprising facts, some of which you have probably heard before and others of which are on the verge of being forgotten. If you enjoy our unique blend of storytelling and business history, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and share a review. That will help others find us. In this week's episode, which covers the dates January 10th through the 14th, I'm going to share the story and explore the implications of the so-called Bread and Roses strike, which took place in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912. First, I'll give you a timeline of events, and then I'll dispel a central myth about this major event in labor history before we consider how influential it was in the longer term. In the early 20th century, Lawrence, Massachusetts was known as Immigrant City, and it was predominantly a working-class mill town. People from 51 nations lived in a city that was only seven square miles. Many of them happened to be from Poland and Italy, but they came from all over the world. Ironically, new factory machines that were installed in the late 1800s had made it possible to staff the mills with unskilled workers, reducing costs by laying off anyone with actual skills. Children as young as 14 were legally allowed to work at the time, although it was common practice to falsify paperwork, so much younger children were working in the mills as well. These young workers had to decide between going to school and having enough money to feed themselves. A horrible choice, to be sure. On January 1st, 1912, a new Massachusetts law took effect. It reduced the work week for women and children from 56 hours to 54 hours. Now, at the time, people in these types of jobs were making about $9 a week. Although this new law only applied to women and children, they represented such a huge percentage of the overall workforce that the mill owners did the math and quickly realized they couldn't operate without them, even for a couple hours a week. So, by default, the men working in the mills got the same cut to their hours. The workers expected their pay to be kept the same, despite the shortened hours, because this is how it had worked with regulated changes in the past but this time that's not how it was going to work. Not only did the mills prorate the workers' pay, cutting about 32 cents from their weekly paychecks, 
They didn't notify anyone in advance that it was going to happen. The workers discovered it when they got their Friday paychecks. In a situation where things were already on edge because of modernization and poverty, it was simply a terrible idea for anyone to allow such a surprise to occur. Let me pause here and provide some context on this pay cut. In 1912, 32 cents was enough to buy four loaves of bread. That was two weeks worth for the average family. Many of the workers in the mills had come from surrounding towns, lured in by promises of better working conditions. These workers put in nine to 10 hour days, six days a week, and the conditions were horrible. Life expectancy among these workers was 22 years shorter than what their peers enjoyed at the time. In 1910, the city of Lawrence had the eighth highest mortality rate in the United States, and half of everyone age 14 and older worked in a mill. The workers were mostly immigrant women, and they spoke about a dozen languages between them. When the workers figured out what was going on, it didn't take very long for a strike to begin. The strike actually began in the Everett Mill, a textile mill full of looms, as a couple of hundred women refused to work, saying simply, not enough pay. As word spread through the factories and the local tenements that were overcrowded with other workers and their families, so did support for the strike. The next mill to be affected was the Washington Mill, or the American Woolen Mill as it was known. It was owned and run by William Madison Wood, a peer of Rockefeller, Carnegie, and J.P. Morgan. There were 2,000 strikers in the streets by late morning on that day. And by 2 p.m., almost every mill in Lawrence was on strike. 11,000 workers were on strike by the end of the day. By the end of the month of January, that number would swell to somewhere between 20 and 25,000. As the workers' numbers increased, so did their list of demands. They asked for pay increases, of course, but they also demanded overtime pay, an end to the company's current bonus system, and a promise on the part of the mill owners and operators that they would not punish workers after the strike was over. Days turned into weeks with no end in sight. At times, tensions flared. Workers damaged machines and attacked the facility structure themselves and police responded by beating the crowds back with clubs. Believe it or not, Harvard University students were given an exemption from their final exams if they were willing to go to Lawrence and join the militias that were trying to break up the strike. Nationwide public opinion turned in the strikers' favor when workers began sending their children off to sympathetic families in New York City and Vermont both because they couldn't afford to feed them and so they could focus on the strike. When local women and children were beaten during the strike because they tried to leave town, it triggered a congressional investigation, ratcheting up the pressure and forcing the mill owners to come to the negotiating table. It was March 12th before any kind of settlement was reached. 14,000 workers, half of the total workforce in Lawrence, had been on strike for nine and a half weeks straight. The workers received pay increases between 5 and 20 percent, with larger increases going to those who made the least. They secured 125 percent overtime pay 
and the mills did away with that old bonus system. The Bread and Roses strike represented the first time in U.S. history that unskilled workers and people who spoke no English came together to successfully push for change. On March 18th, they went back to work. But there was to be no happy ending for these workers. Unfortunately, two people had died in the violence stemming from the strike. Anne Lopizzo, whose name was really Annika LaMonica, at least in the paperwork she had falsified to secure employment, was shot, likely by the police, and 18-year-old John Ramey was killed by a militiaman with a bayonet. The workers had secured agreement on many of their demands, but those demands were enough to shift the cost structure of operating the mills. Many of the workers were in fact fired for participating in the strikes, and then, starting in 1913, others were laid off when Southern mills suddenly became more economically competitive. The New England mills began to shut down one by one. It was truly the end of an era. Starting in 1986, the Bread and Roses Multicultural Festival has been held in Lawrence every Labor Day to commemorate the principles and community of the strike. Now, there were two things that I found very interesting while researching this story. The first questions the involvement of a labor union. The International Workers of the World, also known as the IWW, or the Wobblies, was involved. Although the Lawrence mill workers were surprised when they received those short paychecks on January 12th, the IWW seemed oddly ready for the news. Maybe they knew that the conditions in the city were untenable, and maybe they had already started organizing the workers, but they certainly wasted no time in seizing the opportunity. There were only a couple of hundred dues-paying members prior to the strike, a very small fraction of the workers involved. Formed seven years before the strike, the IWW was considered radical by other labor unions. They were known for pushing for a revolution from below, as they called it, true grassroots efforts where workers united to press for better working conditions and they were demonstrably radical in a couple of ways. They accepted women and immigrants among their ranks for one thing. The larger, better known AFL labor union did not support the Lawrence textile strike. They considered it anarchy and stayed away. The IWW ultimately failed to help the workers of Lawrence because it did not believe in long-term negotiations with capitalist employers. So they let perfect be the enemy of good, you might say. And the workers missed an opportunity as well. They didn't understand the ongoing effort that would be required to sustain the collective action and bargaining power they had built up during the strike. Many of the gains fell away even before the mills began to close under economic pressure. Here's the other surprise. Although the 1912 textile strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts is widely known as the Bread and Roses strike, as I've said a few times during this podcast, this label was never used by workers at the time. Now, some of the women did hold up signs that read, we want bread and roses too, during the walkouts, but the label was applied to the strike much later. The phrase bread and roses originated in a speech given by a woman suffrage activist named Helen Todd. It was later picked up and included in a 1911 poem by James Oppenheim. The work, published in the American Magazine that December, 
was a tribute to women tough enough to make it in the American West. His poem read in part, As we come marching, marching, we bring the greater days. The rising of the women means the rising of the race. No more the drudge and idler, ten that tile where one reposes, but a sharing of life's glories, bread and roses, bread and roses. In 1916, Upton Sinclair wrote A Cry for Freedom, an anthology of the literature of social protest. He was the first writer to connect that phrase with the wider labor movement. Much later, in 1976, Judy Collins released an album called Bread and Roses that brought together her political convictions with her previous musical success. The idea of Bread and Roses, regardless of where it actually came from and the path it took to being forever associated with the 1912 Lawrence textile strike, is that workers deserve both enough return from their labors to be well cared for and meet basic needs, and that they also deserve dignity. In the case of the largely women-initiated strike, the roses in addition to the bread represented an end to hunger and also a desire for beauty, something that was almost unimaginable given the conditions they were living and working in. On that note, it is time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing you all nothing but the best. We'll see you here next time on This Week in Business History.